0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Uncorked Corner podcast, where we cover the full spread of food and beverage industry topics. My name is Bianca, PR and marketing professional by day and food and wine connoisseur by night.
1: And my name is Nick, an accountant with a passion for barbecue, beer, and whiskey. Our guest today is Gabriel DeMarco, oenologist and viticulturist of Cave Spring Vineyards located in Ontario, Canada. They are our very first Canada-based guest and one of the premier wineries in the Niagara Escarpment overlooking Lake Ontario.
0: During this episode, we discuss the unique region Cave Spring Vineyard calls home, the importance of sustainability in the winemaking process, and everything you need to know about their production, bottling, and vineyard experiences.
1: On that note, let's get into the podcast. So, why don't you start by just giving us an idea of your, bre- your background, how you got started as an oenologist, how you got started with Cave Springs, and take us through that? Maybe give us a little intro on Cave Springs, how long the vineyards have been around, and then yep. we can go into talking about the nuts and bolts behind the winemaking.
2: Yeah, you got the, so, the, the Niagara Peninsula between uh, the Niagara River, Grimsby, which is a small, like, kind of rural city. The Lake Ontario and the Escarpment is the, the largest viticultural zone east of the Rockies on the continent of North America. I don't know if it's like 16 we have 16 or just over 16,000 acres of vitis vinifera here and and like so we can do that because it is a globally unique uh, mesoclimate, um, and so that kind of stuff is pretty cool. I don't know if your listeners would be down with that but like um, uh, we think of uh, we think of uh, you know Canada as a cold place uh, with like you know short summers that aren't very nice and really cold winters um, but we are actually at the 43rd degree latitude which is right in line with Bordeaux and Florence so Chianti right and so how do we then grow Vitis Finifera here and they like how come we can and they can and what makes it special that kind of, does that kind of stuff interest you like we go yeah. On yeah yeah for sure yes yeah, because it's a really cool place a very special place The like, government's protected it like you can't build on it like it's all protected uh, and I'd love to like man if you guys are willing to listen I'd definitely talk about that a little bit uh, yeah take us through it. absolutely yeah cool um, okay so myself my name's uh, you know Gabriel deMarco uh, I got to I got into wine making kind of through a, a jagged path I uh, I was, was family my backgrounds Italian my mother's an Italian immigrant my, my father is uh, his parents are Italian immigrants. so um, Part of the table, you know, but we weren't uh, like super enthusiastic wine drinkers. Like my dad wasn't a connoisseur or anything, or my mom, uh, but it was always present. Uh, I got into theater, actually, I got into acting. Initially, I did a degree in theater uh, and world history. And then I did another degree in performance and started acting. And I got lucky enough to be hired at this really fancy restaurant in downtown Toronto. Um, and And they had this amazing wine education program uh, and that's kind of where I found kind of my footing in the wine business. Um, and so I started studying wine. I had uh, registered to do my diploma in, uh, in, in wine business, essentially. And, and part of my prerequisite reading for that was wine science for the non-scientist. And, and for me, that was by page 60, I was hooked. Like, I was like, where do I study wine science, you know? Uh, and, then, and then, so basically, that's kind of how I got into winemaking and, and then the, stu- the studying and then working with Cape Spring. Uh, the restaurant company I worked with in Toronto is still our largest um, customer. Like we do a lot of uh, unique blends for them. We work with them very closely. And, and so I was very familiar with Cape Spring. Um, you know, Cape Spring, uh, we grow grapes on what are arguably the best vineyard sites in the province, if not among the best in our country. So I knew exactly where I wanted to be. So when I came to Niagara... I, uh, I, I emailed my mentor, uh, Angelo and founding partner, uh, six times before he gave me an, an interview. And, and I talked him into hiring me uh, as a as a vineyard hand and I, and I hoed field, fields and dug holes for a season uh, with a smile on my face. And I slowly worked my way up from there. it's been a decade and um, it's been a great decade of collaboration and growth in the company. So um, that's kind of how I ended up uh, into winemaking uh, and um, and with Cave Spring, is you know, uh, so it's been it's been great. What um, is the
0: hi- Oh, sorry. What is the history behind the Cave Spring name and in, in the winery itself?
2: Yeah, so it actually is named after uh, it, up the place of origin. So Cave Spring speaks of um, an actual uh, section of land at the base of the physical escarpment. Um, and it was named by colonial settlers. Uh, the land itself was not inhabited uh, prior to colonials arriving. And, uh, and so it was named by the colonial settlers for the fact that there um, were springs coming out of the, out of the escarpment cliffs. Uh, and so they were mineral rich springs uh, coming from the limestone. And so, and there were caves, and you know, being that there were caves they were cooler, and so you could store food and preserves in there. you get water from the, before there was running water, of course, right? So you get your water from the springs, you store your food in the caves. Uh, and so uh, when Len was starting the business with his, or looking to buy vineyard land in the early seventies with his family, he knew that he wanted to, to grow grapes uh, in a place, right? He didn't want to like kind of like name it after himself. He wanted to grow grapes in a place and uh and so he did a lot of research and planning and, and and found cave spring and knew right away um that that was the place so he purchased his first vineyard holdings in uh, 1973 uh planted and uh in 76 uh and they were selling grapes just to uh you know anyone interested in selling and uh, buying them sorry for like table fruit for home wine making uh and in 76 uh or sorry 86 i apologize his long friend Uh, Angelo Pavan uh, and him uh, decided to do a winery, so in 1986 was their first vintage. Um, uh, And then, of course, uh, Len Len and Angelo were pioneers as well in establishing uh, the Vintners Quality Alliance or VQA, which is our our governing, governing regulation body. And that is very similar to what you would get in, say, France or Italy with AOC and DOC. Uh, so it's, it's provincially uh, legislated. It's not federal. It is provincial. Every province has its own uh, legislation. But it is like you have, to, you have to submit your wines and, you know, it, it guarantees origin of place and then a certain integrity of growing and making. Uh, and that's stamped on all the bottles. Um, and so they, Len was a pioneer in all, writing that and that went through uh, provincial law in the late 90s, 99. And then Angelo, uh, in in conjunction with uh, geologists and geographers, developed our subappalachian system, uh, which is something that is quite unique for a region as young as ours to have an actual subappalachian system. So we have ten subappalachians um, based on geography, uh, proximity to the lake, elevation, uh, and so um, that kind kind of was like built into law in in 2005 uh with the uh the kind of origins of the growing original growing areas there's a, a an appellation on lake erie as well on the north shore and then the 10 sub appellations in niagara between the lake and the bench and then in 2007 they added uh prince edward county which is on the north side of lake ontario uh, it's the smallest of the of the appellations um, so you were telling us a little
1: bit about before you're our first non-us-based awesome vineyard and winery well, we're, so, we're honored
2: we're really honored uh, we uh yes thanks for having us yeah
1: we're happy to have you so tell us a bit you were comparing yourself latitude wise to bordeaux france and florence italy uh talk to us about how that how your location really affects your wine and the flavors that you get compared to somewhere that we're more familiar with like a napa valley or new england yeah
2: it's it's a, a very cool place uh i'm i'm kind of locked in into the romance uh, and the scape of it like i the science of it fascinates me so um we really canada scientifically uh has like two scientifically 100 percent viable viticultural zones too uh, obviously there's other places that make exceptional wine that we that we're partners with and uh but in terms of uh 100% viability There's uh, the Niagara Peninsula between uh, the lake and the escarpment, and, and Okanagan Valley, out in BC. Um, and so what makes the peninsula viable? Because we are obviously, our latitude is the same as two very famous regions in Europe, right? So, um, you know, uh, why can't we do that in more places outside of the escarpment and the lake? Well, if you look at those zones, they're moderated heavily by bodies of water also. And so uh, really it's through fortune uh, that uh, over many, many years, there's been uh, an erosion process, glaciation has created an escarpment formation that is actually quite long. It starts, uh, well, it it comes above ground just west of the Finger Lakes in New York State. It creeps towards the lake and kisses the lake at a perfect distance between the lake uh, and the escarpment to create climactic moderation then it shoots north all the way up to Manitoulin Island, and left all the way into Wisconsin, and then shoots south all the way down and near Chicago before it goes back underground. So it's a massive land land formation. And that formation, kissing the lake, uh, traps lake winds. So a lot of people think that we're growing uh, Vitis finifera, European wine grapes, uh, like Cabernet, Franc, Chardonnay, Riesling, Pinot Noir, with lake effect. Uh, but we're actually growing Vitis vinifera because we have lake escarpment effect. So if you're growing grapes uh, with lake effect, you can grow your grapes in maybe one mile off the lake before you lose the lake effect, like the, the moderating effect from the lake. But because the escarpment is trapping in the lake winds, uh, we can grow grapes up to uh, you know, six miles off the lake. So depending on the sub-Appalachian, uh, you know we're growing wine grapes uh, you know, six. So not only are you getting lake effect, now you're picking up continental heat units. And so it, it, you get the double effect. So we have lake effect, which moderates temperature up in the winter. It elongates the growing season in spring and fall, but then we're picking up a large amount of, of continental heat units. And, and because of that, um, our heat unit accumulation annually is, uh, on average, uh, Sonoma County in hot years, it surpasses Napa. So it's like these, it's this little bubble, uh, little protected zone uh, that, uh, that allows us to do, you know, not just wine grapes, but we peaches, plums, cherries, nectarines, all within this little protected zone. So it's a very cool, it's a very cool place um, and very special for that, just a fortune of, uh, of time and chance, you know, that uh, the escarpment kisses the lake at that perfect distance, at the perfect location because if you look at the Great Lakes through the winter, if I may go on a little further, is, um, is they tend to freeze in the winter. And if, they f- if, if, they f- if you get frozen water, you lose your winter protection. But Lake Ontario is uh, over 800 feet deep at its deepest, and so it doesn't freeze in the winter. And, and so we get cold fronts that come across the lake, pick up the heat from the water, sweep in land, warm up the grapes and the, and the terroir here, and, and then hit the escarpment and cycle back. And so we're getting this constant air movement uh, that elevates temperature just enough for, so if there's a line for uh, sustainability, we're on the good side of that line. Uh, and it's thanks, to, uh, it's thanks to that relationship between uh, the deep lake and the escarpment wall. Yeah. Another
0: unique point about your wines is that they are vegan and certified sustainable. Is that correct? Yeah. Can you explain to us what makes that process different than a wine that wouldn't be?
2: Yeah, so um, for us, uh, we did a pretty substantial audit on our vineyard practices and winemaking. We've always been a vegan wines. I mean, I think in the past that we've made wines for over 30 years or, you know, 29 years. There's been like two non-vegan wines in the entire history of the company. It's like, uh, we just make vegan wine. Um, uh, but sustainability was something uh, that we thought was, uh, you know, crucially important, uh, you know, for the future generations. Um, and so, really, what that what that means is um, because I think there's a there's a general tone in conversation about um, or like viticulture in general. You know, if it's if it's or if it's not organic, it's bad. And the truth is that technology like technology isn't all bad. It's the misuse of technology that's bad, and and it requires uh, it requires extra time and a- analysis of products being used, when you use them, how you use them. And so we've taken the time to audit the entire process from fuel use, water use, uh, soil compaction, uh, products, uh, like how they're made, what they're made of, how they break down, whether it be organic or conventional, and and put together a system that has taken a lot of man hours that is, uh, you know, we feel uh, better for the environment than say dogmatically committing to um, a vineyard approach that has like a catch tag on it. and so, uh, you know, um, that took it takes a lot of time. We're kind of at the, and we're kind of in the home stretch with that approach. The, you know, the first five years of transitioning was a lot of extra legwork and like uh, diagnosing blocks and and like and that kind of stuff. But now that we're we're in the home stretch, like everyone is on board from like our, our general labor to our like vineyard managers, myself, owners. Um, sometimes it costs us more money. That doesn't matter. It's you know it, you know the goal. Like Angelo Pavan always says, our founding one of our founding partners is um the vineyards have to be better for the next generation not the same or worse you know so that's kind of our goal we uh, is that's so the difference between uh, I guess to answer your question completely is uh, the difference between sustainable viticulture and and not sustainable viticulture um, is um, is the conscious like use of things you know like uh, um, environment before you know it's was it people planet profit you know so People, you know, have to be safe and working in an environment that is sustainable. The planet has to to be sustainable, otherwise we don't have grapes. And then, you know, of course, if the business isn't viable, then we don't have a, you know, we don't have wine. So you have to factor that in, of course, but that is not the first variable of concern. I don't know, does that answer the question? Yeah, no, totally, that was awesome. Uh,
1: So can you walk us through now that sustainable process, making wine for someone that isn't really familiar Ground to bottle, can you just walk us through the steps that you take? How long you know your aging things for? Uh, what makes you decide how long you're going to age something to get a certain vintage on it? Uh, can you walk us through that process?
2: Yeah. Uh, so every every wine, of course, is different. Um, we are uh, really fortunate, or I guess myself as what like as a winemaker, it's kind of the dream. We uh, we we farm 160 acres of like premium beansville bench Vitis uh, vinifera, European wine grape so it's like 160 acres of like in my opinion you know among the best anyway of the, of the sub Appalachians in Ontario the is called the beansville bench uh, and so uh, even if our wine is you know declassified to a larger Appalachian group, it's still majority majority of the fruit comes from those vineyard sites and and so we're farming uh, like over 90 percent of our fruit is from our state. Um, and, and so we will basically, uh, we audit individual blocks and sections of blocks uh, based on vigor and vine health uh, and all these things uh, to decide where the wine grow, goes. So from pruning, where you go in and, in the wintertime and that pruning in Ontario is not pleasant, it is cold. Like we are, I always I joke that we're in the, the tropics of Canada, that no way resembles the tropics. I mean, <laughs> It means we get, you know, a couple of feet less snow. Um, but it's, so it's very cold, so we're pruning in the winter. And, uh, and we're basically, we're pruning each block specifically for the needs of that block in terms of uh, vine health first. And, and so, um, so we do that first. And then we go in uh, and we manage canopy. Uh, you know, so there's leaf removal and all the fun stuff you can talk about, like the geeky wine stuff, how to tweak wine style based on canopy management. We'd manage block to block based on where the wine is destined. Uh, and then at harvest uh you know depending um, machine or hand we do both um and then processing we like to use a little bit of skin contact and even our white wines just to you know flesh out some texture because even white wines have tannin we think of red wine as the tannic you know the tannic red uh but uh, white wines carry uh tannins and uh, they refer to in the wine world as phenols like phenolics um so those are white tannins essentially if we they could generalize and um so we all we look we look to to marry the, the the white tannin tension in, uh, into the whites as well to give mouthfeel and texture and ageability, um, and then fermentations uh, we are over ninety percent uh, wild nat- like natural ferments uh, for our table wine. Uh, so what does that mean? I guess it means we don't purchase packaged yeast, and inoculate. We really try to be hands off using the yeast from the skins, and that are in the air to ferment the wines, which gives us an element of uh, of and even an added element of terroir and an origin of place. Uh, and then extended lees contact. So uh, to define that term as well is when the, when the fermentation is finished, the yeast precipitate out of the, of the finished wine and sit at the bottom of the tank or barrel. And those are called leaves. And it's just like gelatinous, gummy, so like uh, leftover lees, And those give flavor and texture to the wines. And we leave the wine on those for an extended period of time without sulfur uh, so those leaves provide protection from oxidation. And of course, if the tanks are full and you're very careful, uh, you don't really have to worry too much about microbial spoil- spoilage. So minimizing our sulfur use, maximizing our texture, maximizing our natural processes. And then of course, if it, uh, we have a, a very nice barrel collection, like a really nice one. And, and a lot of wine, red and white, goes into those old barrels uh, and larger format casks. Um, and those again, fleshing out texture, fleshing out uh, harmony in the wine. Uh, so really a hands-off approach to winemaking, uh, focusing on expressing terroir from our very special vineyard sites.
1: Yes, you're really letting the grapes do the work there.
2: Exactly. Now, can you
1: break down a little bit, uh, what exactly are the tannins? How does that affect
2: the overall flavor profile of the wine? Yeah, in, in red and white, or just do you wanna focus, or just in general? In general. Yeah. So, I mean, we we always think of, uh, I think generally whenever I'm out tasting wine and talking about wine, like everyone always refers to like sweetness and alcohol when it comes to ripening fruit. But really, I mean, arguably what is more important, uh, you know, I say arguably because I mean, it's it's perspective, right? So one person's perspective is different than another's, but arguably what is more important than even sugar ripeness is, is phenolic ripeness or tannin ripeness. And, uh, and if you have unripe tannins in red wine, you get bitterness and green stemminess, you know. I think we're more familiar seeing that from you know, cheaper red wines from anywhere in the world, right? Uh, and in white wines, especially for what we try to do with the majority of our whites, when we're trying to get some of that white phenolic t- tension in the wine, underripe skins in the white, again, will lead to bitterness and just awkward flavors in the wine. And so um, as important as getting the sugars you want uh, for uh, quality wine, it's, it's equally important to get phenolic ripeness. And that really in our climate as we are 100% viable. We still need to, we don't, have, uh, we don't have that really, we don't have a very long growing season. We have a shorter growing season. That's really why we're defined as a cool climate is because our season is quite truncated. And so uh, it's very important for us to manage our yields on the low side to make sure we get both the sugars and the phenolic ripeness or the tannin ripeness.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can
2: you explain where those tannins are coming from? Yeah, for sure. Um, primarily, uh, well, they come from a, a pretty much all parts of the grape that come into the winery. So the stems, the seeds, the skins, there's even a form of tannin in the juice, but not like not aggressive. Um, and so, yeah, they come from that so that you can dictate the way in which you get your tannins by the way you treat your fruit before it comes in. So if you whole cluster harvest, so by hand you go through and you cut all the, all the stem and grapes together, so you haven't disturbed any of that, and so you really, at that point, you have no tannin extraction. Now if you bring that, that full cluster on stem, throw it in the press, and press the crap out of it, you know, you're going to extract that bitter tannin uh, from the, skin, the stems and the seeds and stuff like that. Um, now, uh, the same goes for white, whether you machine or hand it. Depending on, uh, on the, the resting time on the skins and seeds will depend on how much tannin get into the wine. But one thing that's very important to mention is tannin extraction changes with heat, time, and alcohol. And so um, fermentation temperature, uh, alcohol content uh, will dictate a lot of the way you extract your tannins. And so if you end up uh, post-fermentation, say a lot of winemakers will like to do post-fermentation soaking, um, that is a calculated decision because you have to manage your tannins, especially at that point, because you're going to start pulling out seed tannin uh, and different bitter tannins. Uh, but that being said, uh, people do it successfully all the time. We do it as well. It's just, you have to be aware of the variables of concern with the, the tannin extraction at that point. Yeah. Is that clear?
1: Yeah, totally.
2: That was really helpful. Yeah.
0: You have a lot of different varietals of wine. Uh, how many bottles do you produce a year?
2: Uh, maybe uh, the bottles, I do. I know cases off the top of my head, but let me do the math on bottles. Um, So we're six hundred thousand bottles, fifty thousand cases. Um, But now in Ontario, just like every major like region in the world, I think we're in terms of what we produce, we're we're pretty small in terms of tonnage processed. So it doesn't like you know I said we were the largest viticultural zone east of the Rockies uh, in North America, but there's not a lot of very big viticultural zones east of the Rockies (laughs) in North America. So uh, sixteen thousand acres of vinifera isn't a lot uh, by world standards. Um, but what we've learned, just like every other region, every other viable viticultural zone, is that there are a, a subset of varieties that really work best in any given zone, and that we are not unique to that. Um, we found in the 35 years of, of growing grapes that there really are six varieties, uh, four with a really like firm marketing hold, so they're kind of referred to in the peninsula as the, the core four and then there's two that have kind of been added on to that that are very good so uh you know chardonnay and riesling of course those are the most like the originals and the most famous uh cab franc pinot noir and uh, and then a P- pinot gris grigio uh, whatever you prefer in whatever language and then um and uh, gamay noir and, and the number one variable in niagara uh people are uh, always think that it's heat units and ripening it's actually it's that's not the number one variable it is in fact the winter still uh so we we the number one variable to success is, is surviving the winter, even though it is moderated, it does, it does sometimes get quite cold. So you need to make sure you have winter hardy varieties and all six of those varieties survive the coldest winters uh, with the, obviously the moderating effects of the lake and the escarpment. And then, uh, and they, and then they also ripen sugar ripeness and tannin ripeness in our, in our shorter season, every season. And so uh, now that we've identified those, of course, there's still like, you know, like in any subapoli or any any vinif- vinifera zone, any, any viticultural zone, there's pockets where like people are growing Merlot and Syrah and So Blanc. But on mass, like the best varieties for the peninsula are those six. And um, and they, they ripen every year. They survive every winter. And so for that, you're not fighting, you know, trunk damage and all these things that come with winter injury. You're getting, you know, ripe fruit. The wine gets better. Um, yeah. So those are the best varieties.
1: Yep. And I saw that, it's about fifty-five percent of your wines are actually the rieslings. So that's kind of your number one. That's your specialty. Uh, I'm sure you have a love for all the wines that you produce there. But is there one that stands out? That's really your favorite bottle, your favorite vintage that you've made?
2: Uh, well, funny ass. Yeah. So what I, I mean, um, I, I mean, outside of winemaking, I've always been a cab franc geek. Like even before, I like when the, I just have something intriguing about cab franc. This this varietal that is not given a ton of attention. That is like at its best still has this like herbaceous note to it that's savory like it's smoky like it's 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 all the things you love about bordeaux red but fresh and like you know it has like a really nice like tone to the wine so that's kind of like as a geek outside of, i've always loved cap franc but making riesling growing riesling here uh is uh, is pretty a big treat you know um so i guess we're actually going to try one of my favorite wines of all time uh, that, that i've personally made here is the 2016 csv riesling um we well, yeah, we've had some fun, like pushing the envelope. So the goal with us is, you know, push the envelope of, of winemaking, uh, always being, uh, you know, pushing the envelope, but always bringing it back to like a, a, like a very like structured place, you know, clean, precise. Uh, and this wine, when we were putting it together, the final blend, we had bottled it. And uh, Angelo, we were tasting it like, right as it was being released. And he's like, Gabe, we went too far this time, Gabe. We went too far, you know, like we pushed it too far this time. And then, like you know, six months later, we got ninety-four points on that wine, and one enthusiast. So we were like, I get, you know, it, showed, it came together, and it was a, this really special wine from a very nice vintage. It's just got this. But I will, I'll always remember that moment when Andrew's like, "We
1: we went too far, Gabe. We went too far."
2: <laughs> like, so that, I, that that wine holds a fondness. That memory is fond for me. It, but the, you know, the reasoning estate, which we'll try too, is um, I think probably the most authentic of like in terms of a wine we do. At a reasonable volume, and it is like it comes from the same vineyard sites as the CSV, uh, just a declassified section of those blocks. And uh, that wine for me probably is like the most accessible wine uh, that is like kind of the most authentic to Spring. Um, but yeah, that 16 CSV is something that I'll I hold uh, I, I really fond memories of.
1: Nice, yeah, so we got from you the 17 Cabernet Franc, the 17 Pinot Noir, the 2016 Riesling CSV that you're talking about there. And then the 2017 the estate Riesling so we're excited to get into those. Um, do you want to walk us through kind of your experience with each of those a bit? Uh, Bianca has the wines down there with her. I'm in a different state completely so I didn't have, uh, get to have access to them uh, but maybe you can just walk us through what you know you'll typically expect for flavor profiles out of those four.
2: Yeah so um, we have we have three 17s and a 16 um, 17 was an interesting vintage in Ontario. We, it was like, it was actually um, quite, like, the spring was cold. The summer was uh, average with, like, a bit more precipitation than you'd like. But the fall was spectacular. And so uh, 17s uh, were a bit of a challenge, not that we didn't get the heat units to ripen, but that they came late. And because of that, uh, there was, like, you know, a slightly higher disease pressure than usual. And so um, we, may, I, we still did, like, our, our natural fermentation process very like very hands-off winemaking process but the season was long we were harvesting into late November uh, which is late for us and it was cold and the grapes were um, you know they were ready to come off and uh, but the wines uh, really show I, I really love how the show like they they have this um, like white flower the 17 Rieslings this white flower uh, like a honeysuckle note to them almost remit, like they hung through a frost and you, know, so you can like, get the hue of that frost, like it speaks to you in the wine, but then you have the freshness and the, and the skin ripeness that, he, that we got from the late season as well. So it's like that kind of like pull between tension and, and ripe, uh, vivacious palate, if I can use that word. Um, and the 16 was dry and hot, one of the hottest driest years we've had. Um, and in uh, that wine, it's just extract, very true, fresh Riesling Dry dry, uh, but like extract, just tons of mouthfeel uh, and tons of weight. And then uh, the Pinot Noir uh, is very much uh, kind of ins- inspired, like we get uh, we get ripe right Pinot Noir here, but we get so, so, if I can use the word like traditional manner, so more in the Burgundian style than in say the California style, uh, they're, they're more of those uh, like peppery notes, earthy tones, um alcohol between like you know 13 12 and percent, 13%, rather than like 13 to 14 15 and so they're fresh like very burgundian in style but very true to ontario obviously uh from our escarpment sites and then cab franc uh which we can effortlessly do here uh is a joy to grow and make uh, apart from my my geekdom of that variety from mm-hmm. my previous life uh it just uh it just does exceptionally well here and uh, and gets very ripe. And it's even that, like, the wine the wine that's in the States, our Cab Franc uh, is, uh, is kind of our entry into our Cab Franc family. Uh, but that speaks, like, it doesn't, it's not like a less ripe wine. It comes from our younger fruit. Um, and it still spends, you know, 16 months a barrel uh, and just a little bit of new, it's uh, ripe, beautiful expression of Cab Franc. Like, not trying to be anything else, but just, like, true Cab Franc. So I, for those Cab Franc lovers out there, I, re- I recommend uh, exploring that wine for sure. Yeah.
0: You don't see too many Cab Francs. How would you explain to our listeners what that would taste like? Uh, what were the primary tasting notes in that wine?
2: Yeah, um, Cab Franc is one of the, the three major varieties in Bordeaux. And, you know, we hear a lot of Cab So, we hear a lot about uh, Merlot. And then Cab Franc is always there, right? It's just always the player that isn't talked about. Um, and, um, it is reminiscent of those two varieties. Like you can you'll taste it. If you didn't know it was Cab Franc, you'd be like, oh, this is, is this a, a Bordeaux red, you know? Uh, but it has, I call it like, um, the, the kind of the princess of the three, the, like the feminine of the three, like it is, uh, it is everything that say Cab Sobe is or Merlot is, but it has the, like a bit more acidity, a bit more finesse. Uh, and so it is like in, in the blend it is, it is, um, you know, get your black pepper, you get your mint. Uh, you get your savory, smoky notes uh, on the palate, it's juicy, it's extracted, It has a nice tannin structure. But then there's like this fresh acidity that is like present down the seam of the wine that then like lifts the palate. And so you, you end up with the wine that is um, kind of in the family of, of, the, of the Merlots and the Cab but a bit more approachable and finessed. Not as, um, as like, you know, bold, although it, very age-worthy. I love the way it ages. It gets just like pencil lead as it ages, it, like that we always say here. You get like this pencil-led note.
0: Yeah: How do you decide how to bottle them? So of course, I think we don't think about that often, but all wines typically have their own kind of unique styling and bottle type. Do you choose that because of the flavor or like the storing of the wines, or is that more of just a stylistic preference?
2: Uh, well, first off is uh, for, for us is to make sure to give the wine time, like both in the winery and then post bottling. Uh, and so uh, for all the red wines, spend, uh, you know, 10, minimum of 10 months in barrel. Uh, and, and that process is beneficial to the wines uh, because you get a process called micro-oxidation, where you'll get uh, very small amounts of oxygen Uh, into the wine over time, and that helps to bring the tannins together, harmonize all those those elements of the wine together. Uh, And so all the wines kind of start there with that kind of minimum uh, requirement of time and for the white wines, uh, you know, time on leaves will help with that harmony. Um, And then in the bottling process, it's just really about, uh, t- like, it, you know, of course, sometimes we have the fortune of, uh, of a wine being so popular that we have to, you know, be like, we need to get this to bottle. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, in, in a perfect world where we just, like, uh, we t- basically the wine dictates when we bottle it. So uh, we'll, we'll try it. We'll see where it is from a harmony perspective. And then we'll say, OK, it's time to move this towards bottling. It's ready, you know. So.
1: Can you walk us a little bit through on your vineyard, on your winery? Uh, do you have anything that visitors can look forward to experiencing if they get to visit in person?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we're, so our winery is located uh, seven kilometers or three miles from the vineyards. Uh, we are j- we're actually this week we're opening up a tasting room right in the heart of the vineyards, which is pretty exciting. Uh, but if you were to come to the village, it's uh, it's called Jordan Village. It's a colonial village that predates you know Canada as a country. It was settled by uh, colonial's uh, as like a, like a colonial town that had like you know, blacksmiths and, and, and all the, the stuff that came with the colonial town. Um, and uh, there, just close to the village was a waterfall that had the textile plant and, and, and limestone harvesting for brick and mortar. So this kind of the village is an offshoot of that industry. And so the building that we make wine is is over hundred years old. It's, and, and we make wine in this old building that used, has been used for fruit production for its life. Uh, we've been here for 30 years. Uh, so the, t- the village itself is a quaint little village with a couple of restaurants and the winery it's nice to visit for sure art galleries but then when you get to the vineyard it's like we're, we're situated it's very rare like so the escarpment lines the back of the peninsula which makes this thing viable uh, but it's rare to have uh there's really only a four off the top of my head is maybe you know, someone's going to sh- call me later and be like there's five wineries you know but there's really only four wineries that situated at like the physical base of the escarpment so we uh, we're at, in the Beansville bench, we're at the, the base of the escarpment where it's at its highest at that point, and that is um, 50 meters, what is that, or 30 meters, like 80 feet, 100 feet of like just limestone wall with a, like a cap of dollar stone rock and lined with trees, all protected. You can go, um, the, the, uh, there's a trail that runs up the, the, uh, runs up the escarpment too, you can hike up the escarpment and look down over the vineyards to see the lake. It's quite beautiful. Um, and then there's a tasting room in the middle of the vineyard. So there's lots of stuff to do. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's the vineyards, the wines, the hiking, the art galleries. It's just a pretty a great little place to visit. And of course, um, uh, if you're coming to Niagara, there's, there's, you know, there's not only, we're on the west side of the peninsula uh, and, uh, and there's also the east side of the peninsula, which is where you would get Niagara on the lake, which is an amazing, uh, amazing uh, little town.
0: So we don't want to keep you for too long, but is there anything else that you would like everyone to know? Um, we'd also love to know where they can purchase your wines. Uh, you know how they can, how they can get Cave Spring at home. So if you want to give us just a little bit of info on that, and also just anything else you'd like to close out with.
2: I'll start So we we are distributed uh, in the states for sure. Uh, it's uh, we're distributed through HB Wine Merchants. Um, so uh, HB as in like, H as in house, B as in Bob, HB Wine Merchants. Uh, you can uh, find that information out on our website at cavespring.ca. And uh, singular, not springs, spring singular.ca. And uh, we're, uh, we're in 11 or 12 states, and we had a, a kind of a, a really, uh, we were planning to obviously come into your state, and then also and continue to expand uh, then COVID happened, of course, uh, which has been a tough for everybody, right? It's still ongoing, obviously. Um, uh, but uh, so, yeah, it, that would be the best place to go for the wines. And in the American market, uh, we have the wines that we, we have for you to taste there. So we have the, uh, uh, the we have our, our kind of our off-dry offering, which is our off-dry peninsula, which is like the generalized Appalachian system. Then we have our Riesling Estate, which is Beansville Bench. And then we have our Riesling CSV, which is stands for Cave Spring Vineyard. It's kind of our highest end Riesling. Um that is Beansville Bench. And then we have our Pinot Noir and our Cab Franc. So those are the wines that kind of we 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 distribute uh, into the American market. And those can be purchased through HB. Um, I guess like one thing I'd like to, I'm always, I'm not defensive about it, but I'm always I'm just like passionate, you know, it's like and really, it's it's uh, the, it's because we're this little uh, like a little country that has that's predominantly very cold uh, growing seasons and things uh, like this. Um, to state just how special the peninsula is, it's uh, uh, to be able to uh, to do peaches, plums, nectarines, cherries, wine grapes in this protected zone. Is, it's very unique and, uh, and definitely worth looking for a that the quarters open. And, it's definitely worth easily a weekend. You were hundred kilometers from Toronto. Uh, so our 50, uh, 200 miles, 150 miles, sorry. It's uh, so very close to Toronto and the cities come around. And, um, it's, it's a really, it's a really special place and Cave Spring uh, is, a, is a special wander within that place. Uh, the owners, uh, as legitimate as it comes in terms of their origins and, and how they run the company. I'm lucky and fortunate to be part of it. And uh, and uh, yeah, we just, uh, I, I think we make pretty serious wines and uh, we've had some great acknowledgements in the States actually in wine enthusiasts, spectator uh, have, have given us some, and Wine and Spirits magazine have given us some great accolades in the last couple of years, like top 100 wineries, um, you know, we got nominated for uh, top five new world wineries in the world uh, just last year, or six, sorry, 16. So we got some great acknowledgements and um, so yeah, this little this little bit of cultural zone, Nora. I guess it's not well, it was north of the border, and also west of the border. If you're in New York State, north. Um, yeah, it's a little zone. That's just a little special place. You know, it's um, definitely worth exploring. If you ever get your hands on uh, some Ontario wine, it's worth trying.
1: That's awesome. We had a lot of fun talking to you today. We definitely learned a lot. Now nah, we're looking forward to trying these wines and talking
2: to you again soon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate it, and uh, all the best in all these these crazy times.
0: Yes, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Be
0: sure to follow us on social at Uncorked Corner and on the blog at uncorkedcorner.com for a taste of more food and beverage content.
1: And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave a comment, subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Thanks for listening.